1: been climbing for maybe 15 years, rock climbing, from uh, hunting with my father for grouse on the hills and it became a thing where it was we left the guns at home and it became just us and the dog and then it was eventually just me in the hill and uh, kind of got into the climbing from there.
2: I've been climbing for the best part of 14 years now. I started when I was 18. I started mountain climbing basically because my father got me into it when I was young. Um, He was a mountain runner, so we used to bring with us all the time. I was a keen hiker, and from that, I haven't looked back since. Um, It's a hobby, I think, that becomes very addictive for most people to start it. Being a climber, you're always looking for more challenges, more extreme things to do.
1: Usually it's good fun, you're out there and you're, you're drawing yourself against the elements, but um, on Little Nicola it went belly up and the weather closed in on us. I've been ice climbing for a couple of years and alpine climbing for a couple of years. For the first time in about 20 years we got optimum conditions here in Ireland and uh, Lugnaquilla looked as though it was going to have good ice routes. So that day we decided that we would head out and see what we could see on the side of Lug. Lugnaquilla has kind of two main aspects to it and cliffs on the the north and south faces and this is where like the, the best of the ice climbing will be and in good conditions it's as good ice climbing is anywhere that you'll find in the world we noticed that there are red flags flying so we checked out with the rangers and the rangers told us that we weren't actually able to go in to the north prison that day as there were military maneuvers going on which meant that we were going to have to get back into the cars and drive all the way around to the south prison now with the snow conditions on the road and the ice on the roads um, that took us quite a while so we lost a good hour and a half or two hours getting in there
2: we started walking in what they call the Ao Valley, which on a normal day would take you about an hour and a half to get to the bottom of the South Prison. But once we got to the end of the Ao River that runs from Luggan you have to walk in through a valley. When we got to the start of that valley, the snow was up to our hips. We had to break trail all the way in. So it took us about four and a half hours to reach the bottom of the mountain.
1: We were post-holing, which is where you're walking along on a thick crust of snow and then suddenly you drop straight down up your waist and have to dig your way back out of it. And then you're walking along, take another two or three steps, fall back down to your waist again, and it's exhausting. But we got stubborn about it and we were quite determined that we were going to get in there and get the climb out of the way. It's beautiful blue skies conditions, little fluffy clouds floating around, and everything is absolutely perfect.
2: We took out our crampons, got all our gear, the ice axis, and started up a route just left of what they call Central Gully. We didn't think anybody had ever climbed this route, so we figured, let's go up this way. It looks interesting, looks a bit more exciting. We'd never seen this route before, so it was obviously taking our time.
1: By the time we actually got to the top, it had started to get dark. The weather had
2: closed in quite dramatically, and things started to go wrong. I went to take the map out of the bag. The two of us were looking at the map, and the map got blown away.
1: Unfortunately, we didn't have a second map with us. We were kind of um, looking at each other. Going great, that's that's just absolutely bloody fantastic that.
2: As we were climbing up the South Prison this cloud started coming in, which immediately we realised was fog and freezing ice in the air. It was what they call a mountaineering whiteout conditions where you cannot differentiate between the sky and the ground because everything is white.
1: So at that point both of us started to get a little bit annoyed with each other and we <laughs> kinda bit of an argument happening. And uh, we said, right, okay, we'll stay roped up. We'll follow the perimeter of the of the summit. And we thought, right, if we keep the south prison to our left side, then we'll be able to uh, traverse along the side of the mountain and get back down into the Ow Valley and sleep man. We tried this, but in the conditions, every time I took a step to go down, we couldn't actually tell whether it was a two-foot snow drift that we were about to stand over or if it was a sheer drop all the way down.
2: We had a compass. We did take a bearing from when we started off walking. We were still tied up with a rope because we were on the side of a cliff. I think it was two hours into the walk, um, we ended up in an area that was nowhere where we should have been. Everything was black from over two, three metres ahead of us. It just was too dangerous for the two of us to keep going.
1: The winds are very high. The fog is all around us, and we really couldn't kind of see each other. We wandered around pretty much blindly for, I don't know, a good hour and a half, and uh, we eventually kind of sat down to take stock of of what we were doing and what we were about. So we said, rice... uh, we're going to ring the rescue.
3: The call out on Lugnaquilla was on uh, the night of February the 9th. The Department of the Defence own a lot of the land in the Glen of Amal, which includes uh, the north prisons of Lugnaquilla. I got a call from uh, the commandant of the army camp, He passed me on the numbers of the guys and I made contact with them and we quickly established that yes, they were indeed in in need of assistance.
1: We found a spot where we had optimum signal on the mobile phones and the guys um, tried to get a a position on us. We tried to explain our, our exact location and our situation, but really all that we knew was that we were facing a slope of about 35 degrees There was very little snow um, because it was quite wind-blown, so we figured we were quite high on the mountain, and we were facing southwards, and that was all the information that we had on our position.
3: It was extremely low visibility, low cloud, and that means that when you're on a mountain, you might only be able to see 20 metres in front of you. And when you're in steep ground on a mountain, that's treacherous conditions to be in because you can walk off very easily and find yourself in in a worse situation. Those kind of uh, pieces of information helped us immediately to kind of build a picture of what was going on and we immediately went through a full call-out.
1: We're feeling very, very annoyed at each other and at ourselves. I was kind of thinking that we'd been far too slow on the climb and I was quite annoyed that I had gotten caught out, that it looked like I was going to have a rescue off Lugnaquilla. I've climbed Lugnaquilla in all kinds of conditions... I couldn't tell you how many times I live at the bottom of the thing. Like, you know, I've been up there once, twice a week my entire life. I was really, really pissed off at myself that I was stuck up there. And uh, the mountain rescue guys that we knew were going to have to come and get us, like, you know, I was just, I was really ripping with myself.
3: All the mountain rescue teams in Ireland are part of an organisation called IMRA, the Irish Mountain Rescue Association. And from time to time we would call upon each other to help in big searches where you need a huge area of ground searched. We started to call those in, but we were aware with the poor road conditions across the country, it was going to take them hours to get here. We decided to call in the help of some of our neighbouring Welsh teams. One of the teams is an RAF team, and they have their own helicopter, and uh, they were able to fly them across. And of course, you know, it takes probably an hour to get here from Wales versus seven hours from Donegal, and that's really why we called those teams in. And two Welsh teams came over to us with an RAF sea king to assist us in whatever way they could. I suppose historically as well, the first uh, it was the first time the PSNI team in Northern Ireland was ever dispatched in the southern jurisdiction, so they were delighted to be able to come down and help us as well. In addition to all the mountain rescue teams, we also had the Air Corps, the Irish Coast Guard, the Gardaí and the Army, and the Army gave us a team of Army Ranger trainees.
1: We hadn't anticipated that we were going to have to stay on the mountain for the night, so we didn't have any bivvy gear with us. Uh, which is a, a Gore-Tex bag that you put on over your sleeping bag that protects you from the elements for the night. Fortunately, I did have a BLA jacket, which is a, like a, down, a synthetic down jacket with me. But um, again, I was just kind of annoyed at myself that I hadn't brought adequate equipment with me.
3: You know, most people that are into mountaineering, the last thing they want to do is be rescued because it's it's a lifetime of slagging afterwards. And the ethos or the spirit behind mountaineering is to to be competent and to help yourself and you don't put anyone else at risk. They had lots of clothes, but they didn't have an emergency shelter, which is really essential to bring in conditions like that.
1: Keith was a little um, less prepared than I was myself and he was quite tired, so I was a little worried about him. We decided, right, we're going to have to spend the night here. So we searched for a place that we could make ourselves comfortable. Because we we weren't able to dig into a snow cave as you would normally do, we found a, a rock that was close by that was maybe only two foot high, and we scraped out the snow from in front of it. Took all our gear and the ropes and laid it all down in the ground as insulation. And built up around the top of the rock and the sides, using the bits and pieces of the rucksacks and anything that we could afford not to be wearing.
2: I took out a walking pole, and we put the liner from the inside of my bag on top of that, so it looked like a shopping bag floating in the winds. You know that people might be able to see from a distance.
3: We were very frustrated as the night went on because we hadn't found them, and the conditions were just so poor and so difficult to work in. But it became apparent to us as well that the guys were going downhill, and um, we were really just desperate to get them out of there at that stage.
1: The wind was howling across us, and it was just a biting wind. At first, we, we were um, telling each other jokes, and we were singing. We were just kind of trying to maintain good spirits and we ate the last of our food, which was a frozen Mora bar, and uh, drank the last of uh, the liquids, uh, any hot liquids that we had, and um, hunkered down as best we possibly could for the night.
3: When the operation first started, we are quite complacent because we know the area so well and we feel that we've operated there um, many times, over hundreds of times, and we've always had successful outcomes. But the elements just conspired against us that night. The information the guys had given us was difficult to follow, and as the night wore on and we were talking to the guys every half hour, I kind of dreaded having to make that phone call because every time they sounded worse. And yeah, at some stage during the night, I was really concerned whether we were going to get them out alive at all.
1: We realised that there was no way that we could sleep. That's kind of the one thing about the cold: that you don't allow yourself to sleep, you don't allow yourself to succumb to the cold. As so many people in the mountain environments, they go to sleep and they never wake up. because Keith's condition was kind of deteriorating as the night went on, at one point he was saying that he wasn't able to feel his legs from his knees down, which obviously isn't a bad thing.
2: I think I was getting mild hypothermia by probably four in the morning at that stage. I knew myself in my head, I said, right, okay, this is bad, you know, so I have to keep moving. So every maybe hour I'd stand up and just walk for a few seconds we were fairly optimistic that we would have been found in the first five to six hours because as I said we thought we knew where we were uh, we gave them a rough estimate and you know they're really good the rescue teams in Dublin, Wicklow and the Lenvamal are excellent teams they know the mountain like the back of their hands but saying that so did we
3: We also had uh, the use of the Coast Guard and they flew over the mountain and we were talking to the guys on the phone. They could hear the helicopter and they couldn't see it and they had a really high-powered search lamp but it couldn't penetrate the cloud base. So the guys, even though the helicopter was above them, the guys couldn't confirm that because the way the wind was, it was bouncing noise all over the place and because they couldn't see the searchlight, there was no guarantee that the, the helicopter was in that area.
1: I spent the night pretty much kind of wriggling my toes, getting up every now and again, jumping up and down, trying to keep the circulation going and keeping an eye on Keith. And he was drifting off to sleep every now and again. And just I could see him just there shivering. I felt bad a couple of times because I'm, I'm sitting there like, with my all my gear on and my duvet jacket. I was thinking in my own head that I could take off this jacket and give it to him or wrap it around him or something. And I was going, right, well, if I do that, then there's two of us who are going to be really in trouble. We eventually made it through the night, and the uh, dawn broke. And I thought, thank Christ, you know, it's finally dawn.
2: It's been 14, 15 hours nearly since our initial talking with the mountain rescue. And we were just looking at each other, thinking, this isn't good. They're obviously not looking in the right place. We have to get out of here.
3: The cloud condition actually got worse during the morning. We thought, all right, we're going to be able to get in there quickly now and that we'll use the helicopters to their best advantage now. Everything just seemed to be going against us. We still couldn't use the helicopters and it was still taking us ages to find them.
2: We could feel it ourselves. We were just getting colder and colder and colder. We talked to each other and I said, Pat, listen, we have to get out of here.
1: We said, right, look, we've burnt four hours of light already and in February it's quite short days, so we need to get moving, we need to get down.
2: Now I was a bit tired and my legs were numb So what we decided to do was what they call top roping Is where basically there's a rope I lead walking downwards But Pat's behind me, so if I slip he has a rope on me The whole plan is trusting in the person behind you, doesn't fall
1: It's getting dicer and dicer And I'm I'm blowing on this whistle in a rescue pattern The kind of classic SOS Keith kind of goes right. Well, I just heard somebody shouting. Kind of obvious, the hypothermia was was kicking in there. And I'm going, yeah, of course you have, because just five minutes before Keith had turned around to me and told me that he had just seen giant bats flying towards him. So at that point, I was just going, yeah, of course you heard voices. I was surprised the Virgin Mary hadn't appeared to hear him at that stage. As we're moving down the slope, then um, I heard somebody shouting, and then the phone goes off, and it's. Mountain rescue. Now we're we're in kind of a, a precarious situation where the slope that we had tried to go down was getting steep, and um, there was quite a build-up of snow as we were going down, and it was looking kind of maybe like a category three, category four slope, which would be quite highly avalanche-prone. So probably not bright to keep trying to traverse down along that slope. We moved back up the slope. Blue and blue and blue and blue. With a bloody whistle. And uh, we were told, right, there's a team directly below us, and there's another team above us somewhere. They can hear the whistle. We heard a shout when we were sitting there. We go back up and sit down, like I'm kind of looking at each other out of relief, going, right, grand sound.
3: So we located the casualties around two o'clock on the Tuesday. When we did find them, it was absolute elation, you know, for them to know that they were now going to get the medical treatment that they really needed, that they were going to get off the hill. And for us, we'd had people out searching all night, really since nine o'clock the night before. But the other thing is, when you find someone, it's only half the battle. You still have to get them off the mountain.
1: Now, everything that we had was just a solid block of ice. The clothes that were on us, the rucksacks, everything was just frozen solid throughout the entire night. And um, we saw these guys coming kind of running over in these red coats, like, you know, and with big beaming smiles on their faces, like, you know, I think they were happier to see us than we were to see them. Turned out to be a bunch of guys from Northern Ireland, like, and kind of one of the first things they said was, uh, you'll never say another bad word about a Nordy boy again, will you? <laughs> yeah.
2: They'd taken off my boots and they checked my feet. And he says, yeah, okay, mild frostbite here, you know. So they immediately, they wanted me to go down in the stretcher. Because when they took my boots off, your feet actually started expanding. And there was no way I could have walking down.
1: And they were looking around for me. So they put me in the stretcher, took me, dragged me down the hill. I phoned my sister and said, right, listen, you can you can tell everybody that uh, I'm fine. That's um, just bumped into a bunch of Northern Irish lads. And I'm going to have to help them down off the hill, like, you know. <laughs>
2: I didn't contact my family throughout the night because I didn't want them to be worried, number one. Um, I contacted my girlfriend because I was meant to be home that night, so I kept in contact with Nicol till about midnight and said, listen, it's fine. So she went to bed, but when she got up in the morning, the first thing that she hears on the news is two guys are still trapped up in Lodman Quilla.
1: Luckily, my mother had slept straight through the whole thing. So she was only aware that I was actually trapped up in the hill when people started showing up to the front door. And it was kind of nice to know you'd be missed in a weird kind of way, a very selfish kind of way.
2: We talked to ourselves and said, right, it's going to be in the newspaper tomorrow, but we were figuring maybe page three, a small little thing down the bottom, you know. But once we heard the RAF and the Rangers were calling, we were like, oh no, this isn't good. We had no idea how many
1: people were actually out looking for us throughout the night. As it turned out, we had everybody...
3: Anything that was won that day was hard-earned. It was some of the deepest snow we've had, probably in a decade. Difficult to work in. Most of the mountain rescue teams that came in to us, we had, we had briefed them already, saying this is really difficult ground to work in. And they'd said, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then they came and they went, oh right. we knew it was bad, but we didn't think it was that bad. It was just, it was really difficult. Probably one of the most difficult instances most people have been involved in, in their careers.
1: We underestimated the, the conditions that we're going out into in Wicklow. Took the mountain for granted, I suppose, and we never envisaged that we were going to get caught out by Loughnut Willow. I would have insisted that we move faster. I would have liked us to be on the mountain earlier. Losing that couple of hours was crucial in the morning. Had it been in Scotland, had it been in the Alps, or any of the other mountains that I've climbed, I would definitely have had more gear.
2: A couple of things led to the situation we were in. I think the first thing was complacency on both of us. I was just back from the Andes after climbing the highest mountain in South America, so I was coming back really confident, cocky, happy to do this in my own back garden.
1: I suppose the, the biggest issue was it, it was my mountain, it was home, and there was no way I was going to get stuck out on it, and I didn't give her due respect. A mountain is a mountain, it doesn't matter where it is, it doesn't matter if it's a 4,000 metre peak in the Alps or if it's a 10 metre climb like winter is winter and it'll turn on you
2: climbing um, it's my passion you know that's what I do I do it for a living any spare time that I have that's what I do you know I love it the challenge that it gives you and it clears your head It's just amazing the freedom that you get out of it. I don't think there's any other sport I've ever done in my life that brings me the same pleasure that I get out of it when I go up a mountain. It's an escape from the real life, I suppose, you know? But that's what I try to do, make that my real life.
1: I don't actually put myself into risky situations. I love climbing, God, it's very much part of my soul. It's very much part of what I do, of who I am. It's really what I'm about. You know, you get yourself into kind of... a meditative state where everything else is dropping away. You, you can't think about anything outside of the next move and exactly where you are and it's quite I don't know, it's a quite a zen thing, I suppose. I was overwhelmed by um, the sheer scale of the whole operation. What fascinated me was how they were able to pull that out of the bag in a matter of a couple of hours. I just I genuinely think they're bloody heroes, like to do that voluntarily is just it's something else. Takes a special person.